This is a Sunday talk by Matt Saradsky entitled The Body, Pain, and Mindfulness, Contours of the Self, recorded June 9th, 2013 at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. The, the spiritual path is really a question of the inquiry, you can put it in different ways, but one way of putting this question is the inquiry, what are we? Or who am I? And the first place that we start to look is, you know, what about this body? It seems like that's who I am. And then also another question that's related to that is what about pain? What about discomfort and all of the so-called negative experiences that, that we experience. The mystics all testify that the self or the absolute nature, which we call consciousness, is not the body. It's not, um, you could say, primarily or, or uh, limited to the body. So what do you guys think? What do you call yourself when you think of, you know, when, when you're, Maybe not consciously going, okay, I'm going to do spiritual inquiry here, and I know I'm not the body, but I mean, just, you know, what are the, your experiences of just going about your daily business and identifying with some aspect of experience? Anybody want to? You can just throw it out. You don't have to raise your hand. Well, I have um, chronic back pain. Okay. So um, I feel like I'm in my body a lot of times. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, just, okay. Just walking on. You know, cement or, you know, I mean, just doing regular stuff, like the art block or going to the mall or anything where, you know, there's walking on cement, I'm feeling it. Sure. So you feel, you feel your body and you feel pain. Okay. Any, any other? I'm a battle woman in a milk. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I notice when I'm doing something that I love, like working in my garden, I might start out with a little ache or whatever, and then after a little while, I don't feel anything. Okay, that's and interesting. When I'm finished <laughs> later, <laughs> you know, or, or in the morning when I get up, I'm like, oh. Then you feel it again. I I, yeah. yeah. Okay. But, I, but I've always noticed how, how it can transform the, right. the pain that my body feels can transform, and it has a lot to do with my mind. That's that's very interesting. So, you, you guys see that, and and can everybody have some experience of that, of maybe having a pain or a discomfort or something, and then because there is so much enjoyment um, or a, some sort of distraction, you don't even notice it anymore. But it's not that it's gone, because as soon as you go back to paying attention to it, there it is again. Is that? Everybody can identify with that experience. Yeah. Yeah. I have a kind of similar one, but almost in reverse. Like I remember when I turned, um, well, when I turned forty, when I turned fifty, and I just turned fifty-six. Every time it's been like fifty. Like I, I, so when I think of who I am, I don't think of myself as something that old, you know. And so when I feel something in my body, usually it's like, oh, but I guess I am. This, you know, right. it takes, now it takes a week to heal something instead of a day and a half. Or, sure. Um, so I think when I think about myself, I think of more my mental activity and my curiosity and the things that kind of interest me. And then it's almost like the body is almost like a secondary thing that has its joys and its pains or whatever. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And, you know, you'll find, I think, that people will have a different way of identifying, you know, some people are very body-oriented. Some people are very thought or intellect-oriented. And I think there's a spectrum there. And, and people can change, too. Uh, you know, as maybe as you grow up, you become more um, intellectual. Or maybe as you, as you get older, you start getting more in touch with your body. And these are more uh, individual uh, sorts of It can of also be a reminder that we're part of the physical world. That's true, yeah, and, and I'll get to that, 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 that we're, not, um, we're not here about escaping anything, escaping the physical world in any way. But what we are interested in is, what is it? What is this experience of being in the physical world and being in a body particularly? So, so if you're your body, um, which part of the body are you? This is an inquiry that we can all do. Which part, you know, so for instance, um, I, ha- I know I have a couple of friends that are missing fingers, you know, I've, one guy is missing these two fingers. Um, he's got some interesting stories about how that might have happened. I don't think any of them are actually the real deal, but one involved uh, the daughter of a Yakuza and the samurai uh, battle or something. Um, <coughs> yes. Yes, it's not a... It's not a story for this audience, actually. <laughs> but what, you know, so, okay, but there's still, you know, you can, there's still, that's still Bob, right? You know, he's got, you know, that, in fact, Bob becomes the guy without those two fingers, right? He's now that, you know, if he grew those two fingers back, they go, what happened to you, Bob? You know, you're different, right? <clears throat> so it's not fingers. What about your arm or your legs? Would you, I mean... I'm sure you'd miss it, but would you still be right? What about your head? <laughs> yeah, you might miss that one. Nose, your eyes, your teeth. So which part? I mean, you know, people lose their nose, people lose their eyes, people lose their teeth. A lot of people lose their teeth. That's pretty common. Roger Ebert lost his whole bottom jaw, remember, before he died? Was he no longer Ebert? So this is inquiry practice. And then another aspect of uh, our experience, not just the body, but about our emotions, which we feel in the body often. We'll identify them in different parts of the body. There'll be different sensations associated. Anybody have any? Do you identify with emotions sometimes? (laughs) Yeah? So, you know, let's say, what about anger? Are you anger? Is that what you are? Feels like it sometimes. Feels like it sometimes. Okay. You know. Or lust. Is that what you are? Or um, those days are gone. Wrong audience. <laughs> well, when it went away, did it change? I mean, were you st- were you no longer there because you know something you identified with is gone? So sometimes these arise, no doubt. So again, this is inquiry practice. Look into this. So then, how about pain? So we already had some discussion of that. You know, Christy's got chronic back pain. Are we our pain? Doesn't pain come and go though? So if 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 we are what we are, then what comes and goes? Can that actually be us? In a, in a, in a real, real way, in a, in a way that we can say, this is us. 
This is who I am. So that's a, this is inquiry. What about our mind? So what's the mind made of? Experiences. So experiences in memory? Because the experience that you had yesterday that you're not thinking about, is that mind? Or is that, now that we think about it, that's memory? So going out, I went out to the dump. Well, we went to Rexius, and then Schnitzer Steel was closed because it was after noon, so we had to go over to the dump with my son. But that's, that was yesterday. <laughs> yes, well, you can say, see, the thing is, though, we need to be precise here. So an experience is made up of sensation and the perception of sensations, so that includes the sense fields, and then thoughts about them. And so when we're talking about mind, we're, we're talking about um, more particularly the cognitive field, which is our thoughts, right? Our basically the memory, our dreams, uh, uh, reflections about things. So are, is that what we are? And is that even the mind? I mean, what is the mind? <coughs> so if you identify mind as small mind, it's thoughts. Big mind, capital M mind, is awareness. In most mystical traditions, there's some sort of differentiation of this. So we say consciousness, big mind. Concepts, cognition, small mind. So the mind is just a bundle of thoughts. Whose mind is it anyway? Is it this body's mind? seems to be identified with this body. But who's behind the mind? Now, where the, are they? So, you could say everything that we just talked about arises in consciousness. So this is, a, this is sort of our, our basic orientation here. So the self is not the body in any limited way. It's not, consciousness is not defined as the body. But the self is not other than the body. So the body appears in the self, or in, in consciousness, which, which really is why the ego can be formed. It's part of how the sense of separate self can be formed, is because there's a body here. If there wasn't a body, how could there be an ego? So the ego... We could say it forms, or the sense of self forms around some form of experiencing. It's like a shell. It's a, a, a sense of a boundary. And so the, the, this, these forms of experiencing are made up of forms of perception. So the experiencing in the, you know, in the sense fields. And then thoughts about those forms. So particularly, we, we have memories, we have a history, personal history. might change day to day, but you know the mind is very slick at making it seem coherent and, and consistent, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, <clears throat> and if it wasn't, then it would just be, you know, like um, just flashes of experience. There wouldn't be any order. So the mind is good at creating order. Uh, but there's also more elaborate thoughts that we identify with. Uh, 
maybe if you're a real thinky type, you'll have philosophical thoughts, you know. Um, or it could be um, ideas about how things are. I guess those are philosophical, but they could be much more mundane also. But there's also subtler dreamlike thoughts. And then kind of at the bottom of this, or the center of it, you could say there's this root sense of separation, this root sense of I exist, I am separate, I am, you know, whatever it is you choose to be. Maybe you believe you're a soul that's uh, transmigrating, or maybe you believe that you're an uh, alien from the Pleiades that was incarnated here. Anyway, the root sense of separation is very hidden, very hidden, and we'll come back to that. So the consciousness is not other than the body, though. See, these are all arising in consciousness. And so in the Buddhist uh, Heart Sutra, it says form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Form is not other than emptiness. Emptiness is not other than form. So emptiness, you could say it would be uh, the consciousness or the absolute reality. Form is the body and things that arise in our perception, our experience. Experiencing. Rupert, Rupert Spira, I think, likes to talk about experiencing. Um, so, the body is in, and it is of consciousness. It's not separate from consciousness. So, look no further, folks. This body is divine. Not just this one, but all of these bodies. You're living in heaven, you could say. You're already there. Eating and drinking ambrosia. It's the Garden of Eden. What was the band that did Anagata Devita? What was that? Iron Butterfly. Iron Butterfly, yeah. They, they knew how it was. <laughs> but wait, why don't we feel that way all the time? What, what, and and what, what even would it be like to feel that way? You know, Maybe sometimes we'll have glimpses. So obviously we need to examine further. Um, the body and the world co-arise. So like we were just talking about experiencing. Experiencing, the, the, they say um, sense contact. In Buddhist philosophy they talk about sense contact is what creates this whole experience. It's, and it, it, it's split up into subject, object, and the sense. So there's like the three things. The person experiencing it, or the sense, the you could say the sense organ, so like touch, touch the podium here, that's touch. There's the, um, or the sense of touch, rather. There's the podium itself, the experience of the flat, cold, hard surface. And then there's the, um, which is projected as an object. And then there's the, the touching, the verb. And what, what the mystics say is that there's only the touching. There's not the... the Subject and the object is created together. So the body and the world co-arise, you see. Um, so there's no out there apart from in here. But this has to be intuitively arrived at. It has to be surmised through this process of, uh, it's like intuition or Dr. Wolf called interception, the uh, awakening of wisdom. We have to see it directly. <clears throat> Because we have a resistance to seeing this. We have a resistance to recognizing this. And this resistance we call the ego. We call the sense of separation, or whatever you want to call it. The 
um, but we'll, we'll call it the ego for now, or the sense of separation. But when you recognize it, when you see that there's really no difference between in here and out there, uh, it's as plain as day. Shankara, the Hindu 8th century Advaita Vedantist, basically considered to be the, the founder of the Advaita tradition. Um, he had some teachers, but he was the one that really spread it and wrote quite a lot. He says in the Crest Jewel of Discrimination, it's as clear as a fruit held in the palm of your hand. And when Andrea, who is Joel's first uh, student, um, a lot of you know Andrea, Andrea Pucci, when she started to get the inkling, he was living, they were both living down at Dr. Wolf's ranch, she started to get the inkling that uh, he, see, he was he was translating or helping people who came to ask Dr. Wolf questions. He was he was giving the answers, and Dr. Wolf was nodding and saying, "Yeah, that's right." So, so I was like, "Wait a minute, you, you know?" So she went to him. and She said, "You know something?" And he said, "I know that I'm not a goat." <laughs> and uh, I think that's from a Ramana Maharshi thing. I came across it once. I said, "Oh, that's where he got that." But um, the point is that. The goat is the body, you know, it's the body-mind, really. You know, it's the, the, or you call it the donkey, too, you know. Um, Joel likes to call it the donkey because I think uh, St. Francis used that term. It's clear that you're not the goat when it's clear, when you see it. So the body and the world co-arise. Bodily sensations... One way that they can be, I think, grokked that is useful, that starts to get us away from uh, this polarization between in here and out there, between body and world, is to see body sensations as energy or movements within consciousness and awareness. Um, and this is a common way of talking about things in the mystical traditions, in the, in, and you say in the traditional worldviews have these types of ways of describing things. So you say the energy of life is, is an expression of consciousness. In Hinduism, uh, it's often we talk about the universe being the dance of Shiva. Shiva's a deity, and so there's people who worship Shiva as a person, but in the non-dual tradition, Shiva is associated with primordial awareness, essentially the, the ultimate reality, consciousness. But Shiva dances. Shiva loves to dance. And, and that dance creates the whole cosmos. So, also in Hinduism, it's uh, the movements in the world are talked about as the energetic display of Shakti. And Shakti is a power. Uh, it basically means the ability to be able. It's the power of the divine to, to create. Um, and in Taoism... They talk about yin and yang being a, the cycle of polar opposites, which, when they interact, they create the cosmos. And the interaction is also described as being an expression of a primordial chi or a primordial energy. So these are very similar to the Hindu concept. Um, you know, modern physics has has some ideas about subtle processes and stuff. They're just very complicated. Uh, but even, you know, some people do believe that there's a cycle. You know, they're, they're kind of split. Some people think that there might be a cycle of these big bangs, you know, and so forth. But the point is that if we look at uh, 
our experience, we see that the day follows the night. It follows the day. The seasons progress. The earth goes around the sun. Everything is cyclical in nature. And there's, and there's this movement, you could say a movement of energy or a movement of change in the world. And bodily sensations are like that. We'll talk about that. So bodily experience basically is the realm of life. And life is, is none other than your experiencing of it. So our minds try to create a life outside of our experiencing. But that, that's just a concept. That's just an idea. So your bodily sensations and thoughts about them are what life is. And this includes your person, your personal body-mind. But it includes your family, your community, the seasons, the earth, the galaxy, the entire cosmos is your dance. It's arising in your consciousness, in your experience. See? So there's no other. It's all, it's all you. Not the ego you, though. The ego you, depending on where you draw the distinction between, you know, okay, it's just me, or in some really traditional societies, they're identified very strongly with the tribe or with their family structure. You know, ego boundaries can change depending upon conditions. So this bodily experience, this, this cosmic dance of Shakti is, in, in Dzogchen, uh, they call it energy. They call it, It's one of the three aspects. It's like the manifestation of ultimate reality. Um, and I mentioned primordial chi and Taoism. So this is it, folks. This is, this is the whole shebang right here. But what is it arising in? So movement is one half of the picture. The other half of the picture is the stillness that is underlying all movement. So the space of awareness itself is this, this essence of mind, this ground, the stillness. The space is, you could say, it's the conclusion of movement because all movement ends in stillness. It's the source of movement because all movement arises from stillness. It's beyond limits because all space arises within the space of awareness. It's beyond time Essentially, timeless awareness. Time arises as thoughts about experiences. Right? We can get into that further, but we've got got somewhere to go today. In fact, you could say that space defines limits. It borders movement. Right? It's also the space in between thoughts. It's everywhere. It's in everything. So the space of awareness is the ever-present source of all movement. So neither can exist apart, movement and stillness. You can't, you can't separate them. Form and emptiness, emptiness and form. Like the Buddhists say. They also say nirvana and samsara are 
non-dual. Nirvana being the bliss of enlightenment, samsara being the worldly um, change, uh, the, the cyclic nature of reality, of, of existence. We were talking about yin and yang and the movements. Um, this is personified by the Buddha Samantabhadra in the Dzogchen uh, lineage of Tibetan Buddhism. The uh, mirror of the mind of Samantabhadra says, Samantabhadra is not subject to limits of time, place, or physical, physical conditions. Samantabhadra is not a colored being with two eyes, etc. You know, that they draw on their nice tonka. Samantabhadra is the unity of awareness and emptiness, the unity of appearances and emptiness, the nature of mind, natural clarity with unceasing compassion. That is Samantabhadra from the very beginning. So perfect awareness of this unity is the primordial state. It's Rigpa in Dzogchen. The natural state is called or recognizing the essence of mind. Sahaja Samadhi, it's also called. Liberation, enlightenment. So seeing this clearly, as clear as the fruit held in the palm of your hand. So, in summary to this first part of the talk, life moves with the eternal rhythm of movement and stillness. And this movement is cyclic, but it's of one movement. It's non-dual. There's no... There's no, ultimately, a, you can define a separation. Everything returns to stillness. Everything arises from stillness. And stillness infuses all movement. And our bodies and minds are one piece with this movement that includes the cosmos and all beings. Our personal form is made of consciousness. It's an expression of what is. The body, then, is one of the contours of the self, capital S, self. It's one of the, the ways that the nature of reality is expressed. But it in no way limits consciousness. The body is not limiting consciousness. So recognizing this nature in our own experience is recognizing the essence of who we are. Does that make sense? So this is the... Yeah? So you're saying that you said the body does not limit consciousness. So are you saying then that even if people have pain, because you started off with pain... We're, we're going to get back to pain. Okay. So... <clears throat> okay. You can still have like a higher consciousness even if you have body pain. Even if you have body pain. Yeah. And we'll talk about that next. Or we'll get into that soon here. So this, the second part here that I wanted to t touch on is, okay, so this is the essence, right? So you kind of have to start with the introduction. But how do we recognize this? And the answer to that question really is mindfulness. Remember the talk is, uh, the title of my talk is right here, The Body, Pain, and Mindfulness, Contours of the Self. So how do we recognize this essence in the body, in the world? Mindfulness is the process of cultivating awareness of essence. 
The process is to be aware of life, of energy, you could say, of the movement, and to harmonize with the natural movements of life. Basically, just by being aware of them, being aware of your life. As we become purified, body and mind, remember Joel has, many of you might not know this, but if you look on the website, you can find some nice little summaries of the spiritual path. And one of them is the, I think it's the seven stages. Is that right? Seven stages. And in there, there's a process of purification. Purification of mind, he calls it. And I like to call it purification of the body-mind. So as that happens, the shakti, or the energy in the body, the body's experience, it starts to move more smoothly. Life is experienced more joyously. And many people find this, just even not that far onto the spiritual path, that, wow, letting go of these self-opposed egoic limitations, being more compassionate, I start to be happier. It, you know, you can taste this right away. You know, this is, this is what gets us continuing to practice, actually. So you could call this cultivating ease in life, ease in movement. But the path to this joyous embodiment is through the resistance, it's through the resistance. This means we must allow ourselves to be with our pain. So that there isn't a there isn't a escape hatch. You know, everybody's looking for the trick, right? You know, what's the trick? I mean, there is, in a sense, you could say there is a cosmic trick, a cosmic joke, but you can't really um, into it or come to the wisdom of this cosmic joke without accepting all pain. There's no way out but through. So the more readily we can recognize our resistance, recognize our resistance, be aware of your life, recognize our resistance, the more smooth our relaxation becomes. Lao Tzu, the Taoist, um, Sage, who wrote the Tao Te Ching, says in there, softness triumphs over hardness, feebleness over strength. What is malleable is always superior to that which is immovable. This is the principle of controlling things by going along with them, of mastery through adaptation. So, if you can do this then pain becomes your teacher because it shows you where you're resisting. Pain will show you where you're resisting. And what you could say about this is that perfect relaxation is perfect spiritual attainment. one of the reasons why you can't force yourself enlightened. You can't will yourself enlightened because effort is still resistance. The Tibetan Dzogchen, Dzogchen uh, Buddhist master, Kenpo Tsultrum Gyamso Rinpoche, I need, to, I need to get an extra name, I think. <laughs> he says... Look nakedly at these forms that are like rainbows, appearance emptiness. Listen intently to these sounds that are like echoes, sound and emptiness. 
Look straight at the essence of mind, clarity, emptiness, inexpressible, and fixation-free, at ease in your own nature. Let go and relax. Ah, ah, ah. So that's a very high, high Dzogchen teaching. And the Zen master Yoka Daishi, in his Song of Enlightenment, wrote, For walking is Zen, sitting is Zen, whether talking or remaining silent, whether moving or standing quiet, the essence itself is ever at ease. Even when greeted with swords and spears, it never loses its quiet way. So with poisonous drugs, they fail to perturb its serenity. So to relax at ease in life, we need, we need to find this balance. And we need to balance our lifestyle. Our sleep, our eating habits, our work, our play, our exercise... We need to follow the natural flow of things. This is easier said than done, right? Especially, we live in a society that's so out of balance. I mean, we've got plenty of food. We've got, you know, good roofs over our head and stuff. But there is so much energy out there that gets us pulled into these stories, pulled into this endless consumption or distraction. And really what, what the conventional culture is based upon is the materialistic values of unimpeded growth. This linear flow chart, profit and loss. This one keeps going up, right? It does, oh, we're going to sell. <clears throat> the reality is that growth like that, unimpeded exponential growth, cannot be sustained. Your life is not going to do that. I mean, it might do that, but then it's going to go like that. Straight down. <clears throat> So balance sustains living things and it will sustain us on our path. Sri Ananda Mayama, the great Hindu saint of the 20th century, her name means bliss permeated, permeated mother. I just love her name. <laughs> Hiromi's been reading a text of hers in Fred's class and it's, I've read parts of it and it's just, just so beautiful. She's like... Um, the female counterpart to Ramana, to me. Anyway, uh, Ramana Maharshi being the great Hindu saint. Uh, Can I say the name again? Ananda Mayama. Yeah, we studied her. Yeah. yeah. Um, she said, one of the things she said in that book, keep a strict watch over everything you do, how you eat, sleep, move about, and sit. Furthermore, the practice one has undertaken in order to be released from bondage must be performed with faith and love. No spiritual exercise or rite should be done disrespectfully, for it is he himself who has come in the guise of the practice. So, following the cycles of nature like this, which is the display, the manifestation of consciousness, of the movement this is interplay between stillness, which is the primordial ground of awareness, and expression of stillness as appearances, as forms, as your body, as the world, the cosmos. Following these cycles, being a, paying attention to them, it will allow us greater ease and relaxation in life. 
which is good. But most importantly, following natural cycles allows us to uncover our habits. See, this is where the rubber meets the road. We need to recognize our resistance. And resistance can be gross or subtle. Sometimes it will manifest just as a break in the flow, as a little hitch in the get-along. Something will come up and just, oh, you know, what was that? Okay. And it's very easy just to, oh, distract. You know, don't pay attention. It's okay. It's all good, man. I'm not mad. (laughs) So it might be a... got some experience on that one. So it may be a small itch or it might be a great anguish. It's still resistance. And the Buddha called this dukkha, which we often translate as suffering, but it might better be called unsatisfactoriness. It includes all levels of this, you know, the, the small itch to the, you know, the great despair or grief. So why do we need to follow the flow to uncover resistance? Because we need to become simple enough to penetrate to the deepest core of our sense of separation. We need to become simple enough. And if we're running around chasing thoughts, chasing money, chasing desires, or acting out hatred, we're too distracted by our negative conditioning to recognize that still small voice within so as Meister Eckhart the great Christian mystic said about mystical revelation talking about the spiritual birth or the birth in God he says before this birth can happen we must be at peace not fragmented by worldly distractions but united and in harmony within like the sound of a major chord. And Eddie Hillisum, Eddie Hillisum wrote a book called, well, she wrote, had a diary and it was published as what, Life Interrupted, as I think it was published. She was uh, a Jew in occupied Czech Republic? or Holland? Holland? Well, she was Amber, Amsterdam, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. But that's not where she was. I think she was in... In, in Germany? In, I don't remember no, where she, she was. In she was in Amsterdam. Anyway, she ended up in a Polish gulag and died there, but her, her diary was rescued. I think she threw it out the back of the truck when they were carting her off to the last concentration camp. Anyway, I haven't read the whole thing, but she's got some wonderful things in there. She says, We have to become as simple and as wordless as the growing corn or the falling rain. We must just be. So this requires us to be mindful. Mindful of our habits and mindful of our pain. Mindfulness is a practice. So you have to practice it. And there's a couple ways, basically, you could say there's two ways you could practice mindfulness. With props and without props. When I say with props, I mean with a formal set of activities. Examples would be Tai Chi, Qigong. So I'm going to be leading a Qigong. We're going to be doing Qigong on the retreat. Hatha Yoga. People 
any of these spiritual practices that we do. Chanting, walking meditation, visualization, sitting meditation. These are all ways of cultivating mindfulness. They, they allow us to become more present with our experience, with our body, world experience. And to recognize when we're distracted from them, from what's arising. So this is a practice. And what we'll find when we do these types of practices is that it's through relaxation that we become more mindful. It's through relaxation of our effort, but with maintaining enough effort to stay present. Or enough, you can say, eventually it can become quite effortless. But we need enough effort to, excuse me, to overcome the resistance that arises within us, not the resistance in the world, because that's a projected resistance. The resistance that we experience in our own sense of being self and a body in the world. So a lot of what Tai Chi is about, there's a whole martial arts side to it, and there's a whole health side to it, but from the spiritual perspective, everything that we do is about becoming at greater ease using less effort. So that's why somebody who is very old can still practice Tai Chi because it doesn't require muscular strength. It requires gentle, soft, aware presence. Um, And many of you have your own experiences with different kinds of practices and how being relaxing into the practice is what is called to allow us to become more mindful, recognize resistance, and it kind of keeps going that way. It gets deeper and deeper and deeper. So this practice with props, practice with formal set schedule and methods prepares us for the practice without props, which is essentially during life, recognizing thought as thought, recognizing resistance as a resistance. This is much more difficult than formal practice. So a lot of times people hear the high teachings and they go, oh, okay, well, I will practice just being mindful, just be, stay, resting in presence. The problem is the habit energy is not yet seen. The resistance, the subtle resistance, the subtle sense of self hasn't yet been seen completely. So that's what formal practice does, is it gives you the uh, baseline experience of, of relaxation to take into your formless practice. Allowing ourselves to be mindful of our resistance to our pain or discomfort is the most difficult and the most fundamental practice, I think. Again, Ananda Mayama said, By affliction, he destroys sorrow. He, meaning God or the divine. The suffering that has to be endured with patience, fortitude, and forbearance is the destroyer of sorrow himself, who appears in this shape so as to conquer all suffering. I'm going to read that one again. By affliction, he destroys sorrow. The suffering that has to be endured with patience, fortitude, and forbearance is the destroyer of sorrow himself who appears in this shape so as to conquer all suffering. So this 
this um, the suffering. This includes emotional as well as physical pain. So when we say pain, we can mean emotional pain. We can mean physical pain. Anything that you form resistance around, anything that when you resist it, it creates suffering. And as Anandamayama says, this is this is the essence of the path is to recognize the divine in the suffering. There's another quote, which I don't have written down here, but it's from the Buddha in Wapula Rahula's book. Something like, um, the, the seed, the germ, the origin of suffering is within suffering, within dukkha itself. And the cessation, the end, the, the liberation from suffering is also within suffering itself. So, so mindfulness, therefore, is the awareness of habitual energy, especially the habit of resisting energy, of resisting the flow, resisting life. And we, as spiritual practitioners, we need to just start where we are. Right now is the beginning of our practice. It's always going to be right now. And my wife, Romy, says, fake it until you make it. I'm pretty sure that somebody else said that first, but she said it to me. And another, another good quote here that helps us to see where we're looking here, where we're, what we're doing. Victor E. Frankel, the psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, he's probably gone, I'm sure he's gone by now, but he lived a long time. He says, Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. So... That's space, again. We're back to the space. So fundamentally, we need to be aware of the space. And in order to do that, we need to practice stillness. So we're conditioned by movement. Um, The stillness underlying movement is always here, but is often overlooked. Vip uh, wrote up this fabulous little thing as a picture of a dog on a meditation cushion, like a dog Buddha. And it, and it, it used to be at the Green Phoenix, but we have it in our uh, dining area, well, in our living space now. No sit, no cookie. <laughs> remember, this, remember this story? I don't remember the story. The story was that somebody was saying to their dog, you know, trying to get him the dog to sit uh-huh. and, the, and said, no sit, no cookie. And, and then he thought that was a great... That's a great, great koan, yeah. So why? So, you know, we, we know we need to practice practices with um, props in order to cultivate mindfulness, but specifically sitting practice, being very still. You need to become familiar with the space as Viktor Frankl puts it, between, between stimulus and response, the space between thoughts, the space between the perception and the creation of a, of a world. So there's that space is always there. And stillness gives you the perspective 
to recognize resistance, to recognize the creation of the world, and to accept and move through pain. Stillness is this background to all movement, and pain is a type of movement. So stillness is underlying it. Pain is coming up. Here's the pain. And when you, if you really pay attention to pain, it's not just like a steady state. Even if you're getting electrocuted, there's you know still a right. There's still a movement in it. Resistance. The suffering is the tension around it. Is there's a resistance to this phenomena, this pain or discomfort or something. So by being still, we remain as we truly are. Reading Ramana Maharshi recently, um, he had a devotee for her whole life, but since she was very young, um, a woman, and she came, she was not from the Brahmin class, she was from a lower class, and she wasn't very educated, but she would always bring him food from when he lived in the caves, you know, early on and up through his death. And she wrote in her reminiscences that one point uh, Ramana was discussing Advaita philosophy with some Brahmins and she couldn't follow it, you know. Um, but somebody told her that she should go ask him for the teaching, you know. And she, she, she always would just feel at bliss when she was in his presence, but she felt like, yeah, maybe I should ask him for a teaching, something, you know, something that I can follow. And um, so she she did. She went to him and, and he said, after I think probably just staring at her for a while, he said, remain as you are. So, <clears throat> so it's paradoxical, but pain must be accepted to be moved through. Yet, also, this process often is what is required to resolve the pain. Not always, but often, and especially with emotional pain. It's true with emotional pain. It's not always true with physical pain because these bodies are imperfect. And now, it's not that you can do this going, okay, I'm going to accept this so it'll go away. Right? That doesn't work. But even if the pain do, uh, goes unresolved, the suffering, which is really identical with the resistance, will subside. The Buddhist proverb, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And Meister Eckhart again says, the essence of perfection lies in bearing poverty, misery, despising adversity, and every hardship that befalls willingly, gladly, freely, eagerly, calm and unmoved, and persisting unto death without a why. <laughs> so, resisting the pain ain't going to get you there, basically. So, lastly, I just want to kind of sum, sum this up. Awake in the world. What's it like? What's this? What's this? What's this like? So, in order to fully relax in the world, we must be fully awake. Presence, capital P, presence, is often a term applied to awakened awareness. 
and you could call it the perfection of mindfulness. They call it the perfection of wisdom in some of the Mahayana Buddhist uh, texts. This is mindfulness of the essence of awareness in all states. The space of consciousness, the stillness. Which includes mindfulness of the movement of energy, the change of phenomena, and the non-difference between who I am and the ground of these changes in forms. And it also includes mindfulness of any habits of resistance. And with this presence, these habits, this resistance dissolves instantly when it arises in awareness. It's like darkness dissolving in light. So the light shines and the darkness is gone. There's no darkness. So to awaken, we must recognize our fundamental oneness or non-duality with all form, with the body and world. And this recognition is a fundamental shift in the base of references Dr. Wolf and Joel have spoken about. We're no longer identified with the changeful body-mind. Remember, we're not, you know, which part you cut off and it's not me anymore. You know, it's not the body. It's not the mind. Thoughts come and go. We're now identified with this changeless space which holds all the phenomena, all the energetic transformations. And to experience this oneness of the body and world, we must fully relax. We must let go, surrender, be released from all effort. That's why they call it moksha, or liberation in the Hindu tradition. So as mindfulness is perfected, this resistance, resistance in the subtle levels of the body and the mind start to become, you could call it, you could say, become cleared of blockage. It's like things move smoothly. There's more ease, less resistance. Say the Shakti or the Chi moves clearer and more smoothly. <clears throat> when we're fully relaxed, we'll move, sleep, sit, and eat in accord with the world, with the movements of the natural cycles. We'll moderate our life, be at ease, follow the flow. The Tao Te Ching, again, Lao Tzu, chapter 48 says. In the pursuit of learning, every day something is acquired. In the pursuit of Tao, every day something is dropped. Less and less is done until non-action is achieved. When nothing is done, nothing is left undone. The world is ruled by letting things take their course. It cannot be ruled by interfering. So this is a life lived in the light of oneness. When we're completely at ease in the flow of life, we merge with all things. And I'll leave you with a final quote from Sri Ananda Mayama. Who is it that loves and who that suffers? He alone stages a play within himself. Who exists, sorry, he alone stages a play with himself. Who exists save him? The individual suffers because he perceives duality. It is duality which causes all sorrow and grief. 
Find the one everywhere and in everything, and there will be an end to pain and suffering. Sure. Who is it that loves and who that suffers? He alone stages a play with himself. Who exists save him? The individual suffers because he perceives duality. It is duality which causes all sorrow and grief. Find the one everywhere and in everything, and there will be an end to pain and suffering. Any questions, comments? I have a question about stillness, movement, and relaxation. Um, And I just started your Qigong class a month or two ago. And I've been doing meditation for 20-some years. And I took up an extended Qigong class four or five years back. But my experience, this question could be, why should I do meditation? Mm -hmm. Um, Because in your class, which goes so slowly, (laughs) (laughs) um, I, I just relax completely, even though I have to watch you all the time to, you know, stay on track and do what we're doing. And compared to sitting in meditation, it seems to me I don't even come close to the relaxation in meditation that I experience in Qigong. Right. I think that's a. So, I think that's I a. Do meditation? Okay. Well, I think it's a. It's a. Uh, it's a good subject, and um, I think it. Rather than devaluing meditation, I think your experience, which is actually similar to mine, uh, shows the importance that for many of us physical practices can have in a lot, showing us how deeply we can relax. Now, what I would say, though, is that then the process would be to carry that relaxation into the meditation. Because if you're no longer having to pay attention to the movement, yet you're still that relaxed, what is the awareness that's remaining there? See? Because, but you're right. And that's why I wanted to talk about relaxation today. Because people do often sit with a great deal of physical resistance that they're just not aware of because they haven't they haven't become aware of it. Now, it's not true that everyone needs to do physical practices, but they were developed for a reason, you see. They were developed for a purpose as part of preliminary things to get people so that they can purify the body and mind to the point of becoming simple enough to see the root see the root sense of separation, to see that space from moment to moment. 
And you can get there with just sitting practice, you know. So a very good example would be the Soto Zen practice. They just sit. Tenkantaza, just sit. But they don't just sit five minutes a day. They sit every morning at five o'clock and then again at six thirty and you know and then in the evening again. They sit a lot every day. And so that and then they have a very regulated schedule in the monastery. So that process gradually it's like, okay, I'm gonna get in line. Okay, I'm gonna get in line. Okay, I'm gonna get in line. And it just wears down. Until you're just left with the space. You know, but for a lot, lot of us who are in the world we need some of these technologies to help us find the relaxation in our bodies because we're running around doing stuff. We're not living in a monastery. So in my experience, I wasn't able to have satisfying meditation practice until I started doing Taoist types of exercises. It's just my, my experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, so for, for practice for someone like me... Um, it would probably be beneficial to do, with a daily practice, five or ten minutes of Qigong before sitting. I'm going to hit my head here. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And the marching orders. But you need to come to that conclusion on your own. You know, if I tell people, you should do this and then meditate every day. Yeah, okay. <laughs> or, or better yet, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Ellie. Maybe then my sitting practice, I reread Joe's instructions, and I don't think it's emphasized very much to keep your eyes focused on one point, but he did say something about that, and I think that would go along with the sitting practice. But I have I found that part of my problem apparently has been that my eyes will wander, and that increases my thinking, or else there's one school of thought about um, that psychology of, of your eyes focusing on your think to look up a certain way when you're thinking. And I'm finding it helpful to keep my eyes focused. Yes. Yeah. So what Joel often says is you want to place your hands somewhere comfortable you know, sitting in an upright, relaxed position, place your hands somewhere comfortable. It's not super important how they are, but I would recommend either palms down or folded somehow in your lap. This kind of thing with the palms up tends to make energy go up, the body's energy goes up, which can be too stimulating. Although sometimes you, you can get into a state where that's actually good if you're calm enough. So, But just for the beginning, usually palms down or in the lap is good. And then place your eyes somewhere, just like you put your hands. You put your hands and then you let go. You let them just rest. You put your eyes somewhere and then you let them rest there. So the difference between that and, you know, the semantics here, focusing the gaze. So if you focus the gaze, like, okay, I'm, you know, looking at the screw here on the podium. If I stare at the screw, there's some energy like the closing of attention and a kind of a tightening of awareness. Whereas if I just let my gaze rest on the screw, I'm not thinking about the screw. It's just, that's just where my gaze is resting. 
that's the kind of thing that we're talking about with letting the gaze rest on an on a, somewhere. And it doesn't have to even be something. It can be just the, the space there. Is, it's all blue, but my eyes are there in the middle of that blue. And it does. You're right. It helps to keep the mind from wandering. Because if you're, if you're, you know, the, we're very, m- many of us are very visual. So as the gaze wanders, you know, it, it, you know, we, oh, it's over there. Oh, it's over there. You know. So. Now you can do practices where you, where you look around, but usually you do them after you're already in a state of spacious awareness or, con- you know, kind of an open state, and then you can look around and see how. Wait a minute, the space changes. But you see, I'm already paying attention to the space behind. I'm not looking at the objects. I'm seeing how the forms are moving within the space. So it's actually a higher level type of practice. Time for one more. One. Oh, one on. Well, one. Yes. Hey. Well, when you're um, just resting your gaze, um, I have a problem with lethargy. Like I might start to nod off or fall asleep. So what do you... And then, you know, then dreaming starts. Sure. So um, what do you suggest? Um, what, well, I could say what's you often suggested in the, you know, the Buddhist literature, two things. You know, one is working with um, laxity and excitement. So it's just that little bit of effort... And it's sort of like an internal effort. It's not like a physical effort. It's just a, a resolve, you could say. A little resolve to be meditating. So that's the first thing to work with. But you can also... Tr- and the, the second thing that they talk about... And I'm not going to go into a long talk about laxity and excitement and effort. And, but I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with that. And I think Joel talks about it in his section in the book on concentration practice. The other thing they talk about is you can raise your gaze a little bit. And that's what I'll do if I'm, you know, tired and I'm meditating, especially like in our whatever evening classes. I'll, if I'm, st- oh, I'm pretty tired. And I guess I just ate a big dinner. I'll, you know, I'll look. So you can, you know, moderate your gaze. You know, so maybe look straight ahead or even slightly up, and that will often help mm-hmm. keep you awake. So. But you know, give them a try and come tell me what happens. We'll see, if, see if we can't come up with something for you. Okay, we have time for one short one. Is, um, oh, yes, listen. I stumbled upon, I guess it's a practice, um, where I just allow, it's like I give an instruction to my body, you know, okay, we're going to walk across the room. And then I don't do anything, except I, I try to very carefully watch all the sensations of the body walking across the room. And I think this has something to do with what you said and something to do with what Ramana said about um, get rid of the idea that you are the doer. And it's very simple to do. And it's very... I find very... I mean, you get immediate feedback. So give yourself the instruction to walk across the room and then get out of the way and just watch. Watch yeah, the body move. Just watch. Don't do anything. Yeah. And the body knows perfectly well how to walk across the room. It doesn't. Your donkey right. can walk across the room without your help. 
But it's like a two-year-old that wants to be watched. I can do it, Daddy. I can do it by myself. Let me do it by myself. But then you have to watch him. Otherwise, he'll walk into a chair or walk on the curb or, you know, get hurt or whatever. Watch very carefully. That's really the job of consciousness, I think, is to watch what the body's doing. Yeah. Um... Is that something like what Qigong is involved? Or is that like that? Yes, it is. It is similar. It's, and it's the, it's the idea of you doing something simple enough, but that requires whole body and mind relaxation. So it requires complete presence. But then it does just start, you know, for instance, we do exercise where we're just shifting our weight from foot to foot and, and slightly lifting one wrist and sinking the other through the fingertips. And the inside the body, what it feels like is that the, the sense of energy in the body, whatever that is, the subtle sense of the body, it's like it's pouring from one side to the other. Mm-hmm. So one side becomes very light, the other side becomes very heavy, it sinks. Mm-hmm. But in order to do this properly, everything needs to be lined up. I need to be standing tall, but I need to have all the joints properly creased. So the structure is, is, is whole, it's unbroken. So it's like you have to, so in alchemy they talk about differentiation and integration. There's a Latin for that. I don't remember what it is, but that's what you do. That's what we're all doing on the spiritual path. Really, is we're we're paying attention to all the different fields of our experience and then seeing the integration of that. What is what integrates all of that? And so the the path is about doing that with your whole life. The light, your life becomes integrated. It becomes this one, one thing, not just one thing, but one with the one. So, um, little practices like left, right, yin, yang are little microcosms of that. And so they get us to practice that mindfulness that allows us to learn how to relax through the changes, to find the resistance. And this, in this case, this resistance it's like, oh, that, you know, that old hamstring injury. There's not a huge amount of juice there. So, it, as far as suffering goes, so it's, it's, you know, a little easier to start with something like this rather than go work up to, you know, some horrible tragedy that befell you or something. Of course, if something horrible befalls you, then the best thing to do is to practice. But, um, so we, we can, it's kind of like I call uh, Tai Chi Qigong spiritual cross training. You know, we do different, and we should, we should all have different things like that. So it could be art, could be spiritual cross training for you. You know, how can you take your mindfulness practice into your art form, whatever it is, you know, walking across the room. So yeah, you want to be creative and clever and come up with things. But there are things that you know, like Sherry says, she gets really relaxed practicing qigong. Well, that's good. That means maybe it's a good practice for her. Some other people, they come to the class, you know, they don't come back. It's fine. It's not for them. So everybody finds their own way. See. Until next time, peace to you all.